Um, please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. Um, in order to make this not quite as long as it could have been, we will be reading selections from chapters 6 through 10. Um, you can find the exact verses printed in your bulletin, or they will be on the slides as we read through them. Um, and the reading today is also from the New International Version. Um, so we begin in Exodus. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink and Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. 
For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped. The rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. For I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. So Moses stretched out his staff. Maybe. Let's continue to be a welcoming people. Uh, We are continuing in a series in the book of Exodus. We took some selections this morning from the section in Exodus that talks about the plagues. And we've been looking so far at what's been leading up to this point of God's delivering his people out of darkness and into light, which is the title that we've been using for this series. Uh, The people of God have been under soul-crushing oppression, genocide, and slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years. And God has started to promise, having heard their cry, that he's going to do something about this. And last week, we saw how God was inviting his people to lift up their heads and see the hope of what he might do. And we heard about how how God's speaking hope over and over to them, even when they couldn't hold on to it, was part of his conditioning them to be able to eventually hold on to the hope that he would bring. And today, we get into the sight of the thing that they were told to look up and wait for We get to see how God's going to begin to move in power to deliver his people so that they, and as the text says, all the world might truly know who God is and be connected to him. But that deliverance is going to come in ways that are hard for us as modern people to understand. There are going to be things that you've heard in here, even if you believe that you feel like, "Mm, I don't get that. I'm not quite comfortable with that. You're going to see miraculous and terrible acts of judgment. Chapter 7, verse 4 says, come on Egypt and its leadership in order to deliver Israel. 
One, in the West, we're not really comfortable with judgment. Two, in the West, we're not really comfortable with miracles. Right out of the gate. Two things we don't like and are uncomfortable with that God says, this is how I'm going to do it. We're also uncomfortable with the idea, maybe even if you've settled into some of that, that strangeness of Christianity, you're uncomfortable with the idea that Pharaoh won't release God's people because, chapter 7, verse 3, God will harden his heart. God is going to make it intentionally difficult for him to do the thing that would actually be good. He won't give him the choice to have less judgment. Ooh, we don't like that. We don't like that. We don't like the idea that God would harden someone's heart and that that would somehow reveal God's grace and power. That's what verse 5 of chapter 7 says. We would come to know the Lord through these things. Why does God do this? Why does he do it this way? How do we make sense of these things as people remove some 3,000 years or more from these actual events? Well, I'm glad if you are seeking this morning, if you're not sure what you think about Christianity, that you're here. If you are a Christian, I'm also glad that you're here. And I hope that we can unknot some of these things together. There'll be some things that we just won't get to, but what I'm hoping that we can do in this swath of verses is get to the deepest things, the most critical things, even if we can't get to all the curiosities and intricacies. And so what I want us to, to look at to sort of understand what God's doing here is first the shock of stubbornness, Second, the surprise of God's goal. And finally, the freedom of God's control. So the shock of stubbornness that we're going to see, the surprise of God's real goal here, and then the freedom that God's control brings to us. Before we do that, would you bow your heads with me and let's pray and ask God to fill up our hearts as we open his word together. God, we want to set ourselves before you in honesty and say that in many ways we would wonder why. Why would you do these things this way? That there are many things in our own lives where we wonder why. Why are you doing it that way? Why does it have to look like this? Why are you making it go that way? And there's, there's a, a hunger and an ache in our hearts for an answer, God, for a resolution to so many of these things. And there are so many times we just have to wait. But I pray this morning that you would enter in through your word and that you would start to do something in our hearts that, that even if we have to wait, we might have something from you, that we might have you as we wait. That in the midst of the darkness and the not knowing, that even if you don't give an answer, that you would give us the satisfaction of your presence with us that you would be the one who stands in the fire with us, who stands in the darkness, that you might be that power this morning. So would you come by your Holy Spirit and speak and move in power just as you moved in power long ago. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we're going to be starting uh, here with the shock of stubbornness. This is a lot of texts and verses, so we'll do a little bit of bouncing, but not too much bouncing through these verses. But what we see here is really chapters of God performing signs and wonders and judgments that would be genuinely shocking to experience. And I want to talk about first the shock of the experience as we get into the shock of the stubbornness that Pharaoh shows in response to that. Uh, each one of these plagues was a devastating catastrophe that would have upended and crushed any society just by itself, just one plague. It would set a country back decades right? Any of these things. You can imagine just one thing happening like this. If there was just only one plague, you would think, 
That's a massive problem. Egypt is now going to struggle. And Egypt receives 10 of them in a span of weeks. For example, the first plague, the plague of blood. Well, the Nile was the primary water source and the economic backbone for agriculture of the country. That's what the Nile was. It was how they prospered by and large. It was what made their land fertile. It was what made agriculture prosperous for them. And now it is turned into blood. There is no water to drink because it smells disgusting. There's no water for their crops. There's no water for washing. The things around them smell and they smell. The fish are dying. They don't have the ability to water their crops. A whole segment of their economy is just gone overnight. Completely collapses. It's just not there anymore. It doesn't exist. If that had happened to our country, we would be in extreme chaos and crisis. We had something like that a few times in our history. The Great Depression is maybe the closest thing to that, where, where crops disappeared, where things got difficult, where money was gone. There's just sectors of the economy that didn't exist anymore. But add the other plagues on top of that. There are clouds of gnats, it says, swarming the country. There is no clean air to breathe. When you are breathing in, you are breathing in bugs. I don't know if you've ever breathed in a bug. It is a terrible experience. You hate it. Nothing about that feels like thriving. Every breath you are taking, you are trying to avoid breathing in bugs. They're in your house. They're in your face. They are everywhere. You're not studying. You're not focusing. You're not working. You are just trying to breathe. Okay? That's the second plague. Then all the Egyptian livestock die that were in the field, killed by the plague of hail. There are locusts that come and eat anything that was left after the hail. So now you don't have fish, you don't have livestock, you don't have anything that was growing left. The wheat is gone. There's nothing to eat. You can't buy anything. You can have money, good luck. You can't buy anything with it. Then there's also the plague of darkness that we read about. And all day, all night, blackout in a time with no electricity. Day or night, it was just pitch black. You could make a fire, but that was your only way to see. There was no seeing around you. It was just darkness. You're already hating life, and now you can't see anything. You can't see the gnats you're trying to avoid breathing in, right? You can't see the dead livestock that you were trying to walk over. You can't get to any of the things that you were trying to do. There would be mass food shortages, no grain, multiple sectors of an agrarian economy were just completely wiped out, mass unemployment. Alongside food shortages, nature was just turning against you. It was as if creation was coming apart and descending back into the very darkness that God had brought it out of. Everything in Egyptian society would have felt like it was coming undone. These were shocking, these were extinction level events for their society. This would have felt like you were being wiped out. But the greater shock isn't these events. These are hard to encapsulate. These are, these are things that would be hard to put ourselves in the shoes of the people to experience at that time. And the greater shock isn't even that Pharaoh doesn't let them go, that he sees his country falling apart at the seams. He's being told face to face why that's happening and he's continuing to ignore the very thing that's making it fall apart. That might, that might bother us a little bit, that God's hardening his heart. We might stumble over that and wonder why God would, would not let him relent. Why would he let the Egyptian people suffer in that way? It might feel unfair. Why not just let Israel go right away and be done with it? As curious and as, as difficult as that is, the greater shock is that God doesn't do these things to satisfy my curiosity or your curiosity. 
God does not do these things to let us see inside his head and understand the choices that he makes and why he works the way that he works. What does he say for why he does this? If you just take it at face value, this is God's own word. Why does he say that he does things this way? He does it, the text says, so that all people would know him. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, if you look there, it says, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. God's saying, I'm not going to be done at one. We're going to do many rounds of this. Verse 2, so that, follow to the end, you may know that I am the Lord. God says he does this. Why? to teach us how he works, to teach us how he thinks, to teach us why 10 is enough and 9 didn't work. No, it says he does these things to this extent and in this way so that we may know him. So that you may know not how he works, but that you might know the one who works. God's interested in you knowing him, not knowing something about him. I can give you an example. Two of the the biggest preaching influences on my life were Charles Spurgeon and Tim Keller. I know a lot about how they preached. I've read or listened to a lot of their sermons, but I don't know them. I never met Tim when he was alive. Charles died before I was born. No chance, right? I don't know them. I know things about them, but if you were to see two of us together standing in a crowd, they would not know me. God is not interested just in giving you knowledge about him. He is not simply interested in giving you intellectual curiosities answered. He wants you to know him. He is interested in giving you relationship with him. That's what we lost in sin in the beginning was our connection to him. We lost our relationship with him. We didn't lose in the garden the ability to think like some infinite unbounded creature. That's not what we lost. We lost our connection to the one who is that. We lost our relationship with the God who would take care of us. That's what he wants to give you back, what you lost, not what you never had. He never meant for you to be God. He never meant for us to play God. He meant to provide for us and take care of us. The challenge of our text might be to ask us, what do you want most? Do you want to know things about God? Do you want information from God? Do you want your questions answered by God or do you want him? That's essentially what the whole book of Job is about. Do you want stuff from God or do you want God? And if all the stuff goes away and you just have him, do you have what you want? What do we as modern people want most? Do you want answers to your questions or do you want relationship? Do you want him? That's not to say that there's something wrong with wanting to know why God does things in our lives a certain way, but God wants to give you more than an answer that you can use alone by yourself. Isn't that so much of what we want? We just want a textbook answer that we can read and process and deal with on ourselves. We want to keep God at arm's distance. We don't want to get too close or we might lose a little bit of control. We might lose a little bit of power. Things might go differently than we want. We prefer the safe comfortability of being an observer of the spiritual life with God much more than we do entering into the uncertainty of that relationship. 
God wants to give you more than you might ask or be comfortable with yourself. He wants to give you himself. Do you see what he wants to do? Or are you paying attention to the one thing that you just want answered? He wants to bring you in, into his world, into his life. This is someone that becomes a friend to you, that you know their world, you know their experience, you don't know about them, you know them. He wants to bring you into community with him to bring you close. It's something we might be uncomfortable with, but at a deep level, I think we know that that longing is in there. We want that in some way. There's a sense and we're just curious about what that would be like to be in, even if it is a little bit scary. There's uh, an example I give of this, of a, a movie that came out some years ago now, uh, a sequel to the original Tron, Tron Legacy, where the narrator, Jeff Bridges, opens up by talking about this digital world that the movie ends up being completely about. Everything's about this digital world. And it's a world that he deeply wants to see. He says, I tried to picture clusters of information as they move through the computer. What did they look like? Ships, motorcycles, were the circuits like freeways? He says, I kept dreaming of a world I thought I'd never see, and then one day, I got in. One day something changed for him, and he stopped guessing about what that world was like, and he was in that world. And everything changes for him in the story through that. Likewise, God's goal isn't to teach you about him and then let you stay outside the system. God's goal is to bring you back into what you lost. If leaving the Garden of Eden was us being sent out from the presence of God, then God's redemption is about bringing us back into the presence and relationship of God. Not where we become all-knowing, but we're just with him. He wants to bring you in, to give you back what was lost. It may not satisfy your curiosity, but it's going to satisfy the deepest longings of your life and your heart. Those things maybe that you're afraid to open up. Maybe that you're afraid to be that close with him, to have relationship with him. And this, to get us to our second point, is, is really the surprising goal of God, that he would want to draw you and I in, not just to give us some information, give us a paper, a textbook, and send us on our way, but to set up camp with us, to be abiding with us. It's surprising at some level that God, infinite, eternal, wants to bring you in. It's nonsense to much of the world. It's nonsense to some other religions that God would ever be personal like that. And yet that's a deep longing and hunger of our life. We're more comfortable at times with God at a distance, but when we break it down, we, we do have a hunger for those things, for something that doesn't wear out, something that doesn't fade, something that doesn't turn its back on you, betray you, doesn't ask more than you can give, doesn't give less than you hope for. But I want to suggest that the bigger surprise of God's goal and bringing people into relationship with him comes out in chapter 7, verse 5. Look there. It says, God speaking, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. That they would know that I am the Lord is the same idea that God is getting at when he said that all people would know that I am the Lord through these things. He's not talking about just an intellectual curiosity, but about a return to relationship with him. God wants Egypt to know him in the way Israel is going to know him. 
He wants them to be in relationship with him too. He wants oppressors to be in relationship with the one who has only ever been justice. Think about that. Think about the people who have been cruel in your life. The people who have just been unkind and mean and rude. Could you imagine a parent, a friend, a spouse saying, I want that person to be friends with us. You would think, mm-mm, no, no, right? A serious hard pass, no. God wants to give them relationship. This is what Jonah is saying in the book of Jonah. No, 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 no. We don't go to Nineveh and play nice with them. We burn them to the ground. We have nothing to do with them. We don't go to the people who are the enemies who are crushing us and show them grace. And yet that is what God wants to do. He wants to show them not just justice, which is clearly what's happening in these plagues. Something else is happening. He wants to show them not just one thing. He wants to show them justice and, justice and mercy. How dare you, God? How dare you? No, you don't get to do that. You just show justice. You just wipe them out. That's how it works. That's the right way. That's how we feel. Don't you know what they've done? Haven't you heard us crying out for 400 years about how they've enslaved us, beat us, killed our children, tried to wipe us out? You don't get to be merciful to them. But this Maybe even more challenging the question of what do you want, God or something from God, is a deeper challenge to us. This is God's surprising way to show both justice and mercy. And to do that, not just to you and me, right? We love mercy for us and judgment for them. Love that. That's perfect. That works great for me. Hate judgment for me and mercy for them. Very confused by mercy and judgment for me and for them. Don't know what to do with that. That's a mm, brain breaks down. And it's made perhaps even more surprising, more confusing that God would do this to know that God himself would one day pay an enormous price to not just put down injustice, but to also redeem those who would practice it. To bring them to know him at great cost to himself. And this is what we see at the cross of Jesus Christ where in his body, God the Son takes on all the terrible plagues of judgment that were meant for us, for everyone who trusts in him, he takes those into his own body, suffering these things. The cross was not less than the 10 plagues of Egypt. The wrath of God was being poured out into Christ in such a way that would make the plagues look like a fairy tale day at the park. And yet God was doing that to both punish the wickedness of sin that hurts us and others, justice, and to redeem us from our broken slavery to sin, mercy. So that in the cross we might know him again in all the ways that sin had taken away from us, either by others hurting us, us hurting ourselves, or us hurting others. Making it so that even oppressors can come home Because he saw that if our oppression could be removed, if the oppression of the Egyptians could be removed, there was still a blinded, broken humanity there sitting in the darkness that could be brought back into the light. That it didn't just have to be sent back into the dust. And he wanted to see that. He wants to see that in you, in your life. 
in the ways that you are sitting in blind and broken habitual sin, where you're just not nice to some people, you're just not patient, you're not kind, you're not forgiving, you're not selfless. God wants to see that broken, blinded person that is you come into the light. He wanted to seek and save what was lost because it was precious to him even though it was broken. That's what the cross is about. That's the surprise of God. That even in our worst days, we were still precious to him. That he would give even the worst of us not just a punishment for sin without any hope of reconciliation, life without parole, Not just that he would give us a forgiveness without really making amends, pardoning it without ever making things right, but that he would give us what costs so much more than either of those things, true justice and true mercy at unimaginable cost to himself to redeem us. It's a way, if we're honest, that we probably either didn't like or wouldn't pick ourselves, wouldn't think of ourselves, wouldn't think to ask for. But God's surprising power and love doesn't need us to ask him to do it in order for him to do it. Any more than he needed to wait for Egypt to say, please save us now, please change us, for him to make this promise, this declaration that this is who I want to be for you. He's in control. And he's doing what it takes to bring us in, even when we are as lost and as broken as Pharaoh. And that brings us to our last point, the freedom that his control brings. Because these plague chapters show us that knowing God like this for Israel and Egypt comes only by God's control and power, not by anyone else's. That's what all this talk about hardening Pharaoh's heart is about. God's saying that this is going to happen on my terms in my way. Not on Pharaoh's terms, not on Egypt's terms, not on your terms. This will happen if and only when I say it happens. He reveals this control to us as the audience, as the readers, when he tells Moses and Aaron, chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart against letting him go. He is letting us know this is happening because I say it happens. You will only be let go because I make Pharaoh let you go in the time that I tell him to let you go. He tells them so that everyone would know when it was over. They were set free, not because Pharaoh relented, not because Pharaoh finally chose to use his power in a good way, but because God used his power for them. Because he was in control, not Pharaoh, who at that time had nothing but control in Egypt. He told them so they would know that their freedom did not, become, did not come, I'm sorry, because their oppressor had set them free. Their freedom would not come because their oppressor had set them free, but because God, their deliverer, had set them free. You see what God's doing in that? He's tearing down for them all the, peril, all, all the power that Pharaoh had accumulated and just ingrained in them, beating them down over decades and centuries. All his control and oppression, God's taking away so that they might see that their freedom in no way, shape, or form depended on the one who hurt them. 
They were not under the power of the oppressor anymore. They were under the power of the God who sets you free from darkness by his grace. The same is now true for you if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. You are no longer because of the cross, because Jesus has taken that wrath and broken that down for you. You are no longer under the power of the oppressor. You might still be standing there feeling like Israel, having some of the pain of this, but God is saying, even when these things are happening, he is not in control. I am in control. You are not under the power of the oppressor. You are under the power of the deliverer. He is not God. I am God. Do you know that God? Do you see the freedom his control brings into your life? That you don't have to go to whatever power oppresses you. Uh, A person that's been unkind to you, that's been hurtful, betrayed you. You don't have to go to some particular problem, some structure, some system, some government. You don't have to go to your own sin struggle and your willpower and beg these things to act. Beg them to stop. Beg them to stop having power over you, to release you and restore you. You don't need them anymore when you have this God. They are not, from the divine perspective, in control. That's what our passage shows us. Israel didn't need Egypt's power to be set free. Israel was not let go because Egypt was strong. Israel was let go when Egypt was laid low and made completely weak. They did not get out because their oppressor was strong. They didn't need a powerful, stubborn ruler to be willing to let them go because it didn't depend on him. From the very beginning when God announces this, it didn't depend on him. Depended on God's control. And likewise, in our lives, you're set free from your own hurtful behaviors and sin struggles. You're being rude or harsh or unkind or impatient with people. You're being selfish. You're misusing your body or your money or your resources, your gifts and your talents. Not because you finally master enough willpower and plans and habits to get it done. But because God takes away the control of those things over you. He could do that today. He could do that at a night. He could do that through a process. But it doesn't happen because you go to those things that are making your life sad and broken and they give you power. It's because God, who is in control, sets you free. Similarly, you're set free from from resentment, from bitterness, from the pain of what someone has done to you. Their hurtful behaviors, their sin struggles, not because they finally repent and make amends. Praise God if they do. But because God takes away the power of their control over you by the power of his grace setting you free in a heart that can let the hurt go. Even if you can never trust them again. Even if it wouldn't be wise to trust them again. You don't have to be captive to what they did to you because he has the final word over you. He's the one who says how valuable you are. He's the one who says whether you're worth something or not. He's the one who says whether you're worth knowing, worth caring for, worth loving, worth having a relationship. He's the one who says that you belong and nothing can change that. He's the one who says you will get so much more than you can ever lose here, than anything that anyone could possibly take from you is like nothing to him. 
He's the one who has the control to set you free from what they've done to you. That's where we find freedom. Not in those people finally listening to us. Not in us finally listening to the best advice. But that God is in control and we're not dependent on ourselves or others, not even on our oppressors, to be free. We get to enjoy the power and grace of God. And you may have to wait to see that. Israel had to wait a long time to see that. They even wait when it starts to show up in their lives. When God starts speaking and saying, I'm going to do this, they lose hope, as we talked about last time, really quickly. You might be in that point where you have to wait. You have to endure to see the freedom that's going to come. But when it comes, you will truly be free because you won't owe your freedom to anything or anyone else. It won't be because you did it. It won't be because they did it. It will only be because you see that he did it. That's the God that we have, the God of Exodus. And in light of that, I want to encourage you to do two things as we close. I want to give you two takes. Take hold, first of all, of this God. You don't know him yet. Maybe you've walked away from him for a long time. Receive his mercy and justice. That both and, not just one, not just the other. Receive both of those for you. Receive being brought back into relationship. Receive not having your questions answered, but having a friend. Having a relationship with someone who is bigger than anything you can comprehend. Because you're not going to find another God like this who wants to, yes, show you justice and not let those hurtful things go undone, and at the same time to, yes, show you mercy for the things that you would hope would be let go. Know his love poured out for you in Jesus, that he would pay that dramatic price, that he would want to see the broken, blinded things in you brought back into the light, not shamed and thrown away and destroyed, but redeemed. Ask him to take hold of you and follow where he goes. And if you already are a Christian, take hold of him anew. Take him, not something less than him. Take him, not good theology about him. Take him, not good ministry programming, not just a good community group, not just a good church. Take him. That's what all these things are about. Him, a relationship with him. That's what Paul says in the New Testament, that one day, I'm sorry, John, that we'll, that we'll see him with unveiled faces. We'll be like him because we'll see him. That's what this is pointing towards. Take him. Don't settle for something less than knowing him. That's what he has for you. Ask him to take hold of your heart in a new way this week. But take hold of him, not just something about him. And finally, let him take away power from whatever it is that oppresses you. Just hand him the situation that you're in. Set it in front of him. Keep setting it in front of him. Say, I don't know how this works. I don't know what to do with this. This is difficult. This hurts. This hurts me. It hurts others. Ask him to be the power over that so that you don't have to deliver yourself. To take the control that it has over you away and to teach you to look to him, not yourself, for deliverance so that you can have what you need. Because with him and him alone, 
Do you get the freedom of relying on a God who has the power to do it for you by grace instead of relying on the slavery of having to do it on your own? This is the God of Exodus, the God who would do it for you, who would set you free from your oppressors, who would give you more than information, who would give you relationship. Let him take hold of you. Let him take the pain. Let's pray. We'd like to leave a little time for you to talk to God about what's on your heart right now. Maybe thanking him for giving us himself to take care of us like that, to know him in relationship, not just something about him. Maybe confessing the ways that, that you've wanted an answer from God more than you want him. That you just want the information. You're not, you're not really interested. Confessing that it, if that was a friend, that that friend would be really hurt and that maybe you've hurt him like that. Maybe asking God to, to be your father and move in power in your life where you need him to set you free and the things that you just can't get out from under. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you give us yourself so much more than we would ask, that you see us in the dark and that you long to bring us into the light. So I pray that you might do that. Would you do that now? Amen.